So last week we focused in at uh, hallowed be your name. And then this week it's your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, great. So what I wanted to do last week was try and set kind of our vision a little bit more on what it what what Jesus is is meaning and teaching by hallowed be your name that this isn't it isn't in itself a statement of praise oh god your name is holy but rather a prayer to god that he would make his name uh, holy or sanctified he'd sanctify his name which i said means to set it apart to see it as valuable and um I kind of talked about why that was so important that at our heart and at the core of who we are as believers, as Christians, if that's what we call ourselves today, is an understanding that God is holy um, and that this is a really good thing for us. And that that's at the forefront of the beginning of the prayer because that's where Jesus wants our priority to be as we come to pray, is that we're praying Uh, for a revelation, a revealing of God's holiness in our own life and then out and into the world. And the next part of the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is really a a following on from, an outflowing. And arguably, so is the second half of the prayer, which is more us-focused. If you, again, if you were here last week, you know that I showed, um, I, I really helped breaking, helps me to break things up. And so we see that Jesus has formed this prayer as a two-parter. First part, three petitions to God. God, uh, make your name great. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done. And then the second part is give us. It's us-focused. It's about what we need and our um, needs. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins and um, deliver us from evil uh, as well. So that's where we're going to get to in the next couple of weeks, homing in on. But I'm hoping that we see how out of this first part flows all of the rest. But this morning, as um, I've been thinking and praying and and looking at this scripture, uh, I want us to kind of land a little bit more practically on what kind of a people we should be or what kind of a people we would be if we pray these prayers or this prayer regularly, how this prayer would shape us and could shape us as a people if we pray this prayer on our own or corporately as it's, you know, Jesus expects it to be prayed corporately, not necessarily line by line as a kind of, uh, I don't know, like a, like, a, like a thing that you do, you tick it off at the beginning of a meeting, oh, let's stand up to say the Lord's Prayer. But no, as we really think about and pray, even using this structure, but perhaps expanding on it as we pray, what does Jesus expect to happen to us as Christians? And if you remember, I said that the reason why I think this is so true of this prayer, that that's what Jesus is hoping for, is because it it comes right in the middle of his big sermon, Sermon on the Mount, teaching his disciples what to be like. If you're going to be my people, if you're my disciples, this is what it's going to look like. And it starts in Matthew chapter 5, ends in Matthew chapter 7, and right here in the middle of chapter 6, at the pinnacle, is the Lord's Prayer. He's expecting his people, his disciples, his church, to, 
to so weave this into the fabric of their everyday that it becomes part of who they are. His priorities become our priorities. So we're going to tackle this this morning backwards. We're going to start, if I, and I apologize, I'm a kind of, I like to have usually three clear points. And I'm kind of not going to be able to manage that this morning. But if you want to structure, if you're a note taker, the, the sort of general structure this morning will be these verses backwards. So on earth as it is in heaven, your will be done, your kingdom come. And that's primarily because I think that on earth as it is in heaven answers my biggest questions about the first two petitions. The first two petitions raise some questions for me that I then want answers to, and the last part answers it. So the questions that they ask is, we'll ask them up front, is there's, a, there's an implication here. Jesus seems to be making the point that in some way, God's will and God's kingdom aren't on earth as they are in heaven. They're, they're not here in some way. We're praying for these things. And me, as kind of a, a reformed, uh, and I kind of hesitate to use it, but I, if you want to talk to me about it afterwards, you can. Uh, I, I would consider myself a Calvinist. If that's a, a word that has loaded meaning to you, then come and speak to me about it. I'd love to have that conversation. I truly would, because uh, it's meaningful to me. Um, that, that phrase and that, that terminology and all the ideas there. But what that means at its core is that I believe in a God who's king over everything. I believe in a God who rules and reigns. And yet here Jesus is saying, pray your kingdom come. So there's a tension there for me. And I believe in a God who, who, whose, whose will is this amazing, beautiful thing that can't be thwarted. It's, it's where I get the confidence to pray Romans 8, 28, for all things work to good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Why? Because you can't stop God. His will is unstoppable. So why am I praying your will be done? That's a tension for me. And I think there's a tension there. To understand it here is um, important. Because, uh, well... Because it, it's really important that we can hold the tension in our faith as Christians. So clearly, there's a way in which we can say God's will is this immovable. When he sets his mind to something, when he has a purpose and a plan, he fulfills it. And yet, we can still pray for God's will. Where his kingdom and his rule and his reign over the earth, we can declare it. And yet, we can pray for it to come. We have to be able to kind of reconcile those things. So, on earth as it is in heaven, this is how I would do it. Hopefully, Jesus gives us the answer because heaven is the place and the picture in this uh, for us to understand as we look through Scripture and we, we, we kind of hear glimpses of and see pictures, kind of Daniel's visions that we, you know, if we're with us reading Daniel, Daniel has visions of, of thrones and cherubim and there's this, I mean, it's amazing Seen picture in the, in the book of Daniel where he's looking at earthly rulers and earthly kings and they're strutting around saying, oh, look at me, my world, my kingdom. I've got like 10 people here who do my bidding. And behind the, this kind of earthly king who's boastful and strutting around is this vision of God Almighty 
attended by millions of servants and worshipped by billions of people. It's, it's almost a, a laughable thing. It's kind of like in England, we have pantomime and it's this silly play that goes on where the audience interact. Daniel's expecting us, <laughs> sorry, Eric. Daniel's expecting us to see the, the joke there that earthly kingdoms don't match up to God's kingdom and in heaven is the picture of God's rule and reign where he is attended by ministers and servants that do his bidding. They're obedient to his voice and to his words. I don't know um, if you've ever seen the West Wing. It's a bit dated now, but perhaps um, some of you have or you've seen maybe a political drama um, more recently that might help with the image. But I remember when I watched the West Wing, um, that the president, as he walks around kind of the bullpit, the pen, you know, people just appear out of nowhere, taking notes, ask a question, and then they disappear off to do the thing. And then he's kind of, he goes into a room and he says, you, Jimmy, we need this. And Jimmy's like, I'm up, and he's off. It, you know, it's that kind of sense of when the king is in the room, when the president's in the room, people are listening, they're taking notes, they're doing it, and they're doing his bidding. Heaven is the seat of God's rule, and it represents his authority. Psalm 103 says, uh, and verse 19 says, uh, the Lord, actually I got my Psalms. I was reading Psalm 99 and I thought, wow, that's, that's I mean, you can open up the Psalms at any place and get a verse that's going to tell you about God's kingdom, can't you, really? Uh, Psalm 99 says this, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He reigns. And Psalm 103, verse 9. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So we know this to be true. The king reigns in the heavens. The point that Jesus is making is that this isn't the case on earth. Yes, he's still the king over all, but the people aren't obedient. See, earth is, is filled with treasonous, rebellious rebels like you and I, actually. That's the reality. It's the picture that the Bible paints is that there's a God in heaven who rules over all, but there's a problem with the people on earth. There's a problem with the situation on earth also part of the creation. And so there's this split. There's this heaven where God's rule and reign is, is complete and there's obedience to him and there's earth where there's a rebellion happening. And a, a rebellion's interesting because people can say, oh no, we don't have that king, but he's still the ruler. He's still the reign. He still reigns. And it's worth saying at this point that the Christian picture of life after death isn't that we go to be in heaven. That isn't the picture that is painted throughout Scripture, that when you die, finally we get to leave this place and we get to go back up there where it's, you know, harps and clouds and perfect obedience. No, that's not the picture of heaven and earth. That's not the picture of the future, the painting, the picture, the beautiful, amazing hope of the future for you and for me, for if we believe in Jesus this morning, is of heaven come to earth. It's of heaven come down. It's that God is going to bring his rule and reign and his authority and all of the goodness that that brings 
to this earth, that he's going to put an end to the rebellion. And amazingly, the, the grand plan of God to put an end to the rebellion isn't to put down the tre- treasonous re- rebels, but is to die in their place on the cross. The kingdom is an upside-down kingdom to all of our expectations. That's my third point. We'll come back to it. But it's worth saying, we're not talking about, when we talk about heaven and earth, on earth as it is in heaven, is because Jesus expects heaven to come down. We're praying for the reality that we know is true in heaven to be a reality here on earth, where it isn't. It isn't the case that there is obedience to God, where he rules in a transparent and open way, where he uh, lives in the hearts of his people. So your will be done. Okay, God's will can be a complicated topic, but it, there's maybe a simple way to understand it. Is anything simple? I don't know. But there's two ways in which theologians and kind of philosophers separate out the will of God. There is what's called the will of decree or the hidden will of God. And then there's the revealed will or the will of command. I haven't got them up, so we'll... I hope you can remember. So the will of decree or the hidden will of God is his sovereign outside of time control of all things. It's what I tend to think of when I think of the will of God. It's that down to the, the atomic structure of atoms, to the explosions in outer space, God has his hand in it all and oversees it all in a way that any being outside of time would have to do from a philosophical level. And if that boggles your mind, it's supposed to. That's the point. The point of God's hidden will isn't that that sits comfortably with us. It's that it puts us in our place as mortal human beings, as created, not creator. It's the case that we should, when we think about God, be confused. That's normal. If that sentence confused you, it's the point. God is beyond our thinking, and specifically in this way, in his hidden will, in his will of decree, it's where we might talk about God's sovereignty. It's where, if you remember the story of Joseph, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and they, they, they were jealous of his beautiful coat, so they threw him into a hole and sold him to slavery and then told his dad he's dead. And he goes to Egypt and through unpleasant circumstances for sure, but eventually, as he's faithful to God, as he's faithful to, to, to how the gift that God's put in him, Joseph is exalted to a place of basically ruler of Egypt. And it's amazing. And in being in that position, he's able to save uh, God's people. And his brothers come back and they're devastated. And Joseph's response is, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's the kind of will that we're talking about, where God is able to take what's awful, what's, what's just despicable and horrible and difficult and unimaginable and somehow weave it for good. And it's uh, the belief in a sovereign God that allows us to say those things. The alternative is that all of the bad stuff that happens to us is just really bad. With a sovereign God, there's hope. That somehow, and I hope one day we'll get to understand it, but perhaps even then in heaven it will be too much for our tiny brains. But somehow God is weaving all things for good. 
somehow for his glory and for his namesake, the course of history is in his hands. But we can't see it. We don't understand it. Occasionally we get glimpses. Isaiah 46 verses 9 to 10. God says, I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end, the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is God's hidden will. I don't think this is in mind when Jesus says, your will be done because I think Jesus is very much expecting that that's taken care of. The other way that we can understand God's will is God's revealed will. It's the will of command. And it's very simple. It's just the things that he's revealed he wants us to do with our lives. I, maybe this is an unhelpful analogy. I thought of, tried to think of it like this, but as soon as you make an analogy out of these things, it loses it. But with Harry, I have a hope for his future. And I don't share that necessarily with him. The kind of person I want him to be, the kind of human being we're shaping him to be. And of course, I, I communicate that with him. But then, you know, I have hopes and dreams. He'll be a musician, maybe. That he'll be creative, that he'll be artistic, but that he'll still also be more fit and healthy than I am and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. That's maybe the hidden stuff. I don't necessarily share that with him. And then there's the stuff I actually want him to do day to day. Please tidy up your toys before we can go kind of thing. It's the things I'm asking him to do. Um, this is more like uh, what I think Jesus is saying here because just later on in Matthew 7, Chapter uh, verse 21, so we're still in this long teaching of Scripture. We're still in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So here, we've got all of that, that language from this prayer used again only a few verses later. Still the same train of thought. Jesus is mid, he's coming towards the end of his sermon and he's rounding it up and he says, we, we do the will of my, if you do the will of my father, you'll inherit the kingdom. This kingdom that we'll, we'll get to. If you do the will of my father, you'll inherit the kingdom. How can we know? Well, because he's revealed it to us. It's his will of decree or the things that he's revealed to us, uh, that, um, yeah, sorry, his will of decree always comes to pass. So, so his sovereign will, his hidden will always comes to pass, whether we believe in it or not. And his will of command, that's what he's revealed to us to do, uh, can be broken and is every day. So therefore, I think your will be done is not, it's not, we, we sometimes hear it as we pray for things like uh, healing you know, we're praying for something that's difficult, that seems troubling, that seems like, ooh, there's, got, there's a faith element here. We, we might pray, oh, but only if it's your will, Lord. And I think we've got to be a little bit careful. I've, uh, when we're talking about healing, um, just to bring that one up, it's of course the case that God doesn't heal all things, all sicknesses every time we pray. That's obvious, 
because not everyone who's ever been prayed for has been healed. So that's true. But we also know that God does heal people. He does heal people today. I have a testimony of healing that I can share with you, um, and which now I realize I probably should. Um, but it was, I had a, a, a huge phobia of dogs, like a crippling phobia, where I couldn't be, obviously I could, never, I could never go to someone's house if they had a dog, that was obvious, but I also couldn't go to a park. Walking down the road was pretty t- terrifying for me, and I would obviously cross the road or climb a tree or climb the nearest person to get away from a dog. It's an, it's an irrational fear, phobia. If you have a phobia, you know what they're like. If you know someone who has a phobia, you know that there's nothing rational about it. Oh, don't worry, this dog won't hurt you. Doesn't make a difference. It didn't matter if it was a Chihuahua or a Rottweiler. I was inexplicably terrified, and I went to be prayed for to be. I was part of a very charismatic Pentecostal church when I when I became a Christian, about 14 years old, and they believed uh, that you know as we do, that we should be lay, we should pray for people to be filled with the Spirit. And so as my first time I'd been baptized, the weekend after, the pastor said, oh, I'll pray for you to be filled with the Spirit. And uh, in that church, there was very much an expectation that there would be some speaking in tongues or I'd prophesy or levitate off the ground or something. Um, and uh, none of that happened, and that was okay. But then, um, I, you know, we, 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 he, he said, is there anything else I could pray for? He said, well, oh, I am really scared of dogs. So he prayed for that. And then we forgot about it. And then the next day I went to Wales with a friend of uh, my family, my best, best friend Matt, Josh, went, went to uh, Wales with his family. And we were out in a caravan site. And this big red setter came along, gorgeous, beautiful dogs. And I love them to this day because this red setter came up and I was stroking the dog. And I was like, wow, isn't it really beautiful? And then my, my, my best friend, what are you doing? And because they obviously they knew me. And I didn't even remember I was scared of dogs. So there you go. Amen. So God does heal psychological wounds and physical. He does heal today. We believe that. The point I wanted to make was, you don't need to say, God, if that's your will. Because it is. And it is his will to heal. Now or in heaven, it's going to happen. He's revealed it to us. And the timing isn't necessarily our concern, is it? Uh, Ulla said to me before, as he came up, he said, what was it you said, Ulla? We're humans, we're all about time, but God is about timing. God's timing. So we can pray for healing now and be okay with that, because it is his will. We could pray for people to be set free from uh, bondage to sin, where things, it's just something that just keeps coming up in my life. I keep falling back. I keep finding myself struggling with this time and time again. We can pray for freedom over these things because it's God's will to do that. He's revealed it because he says, I've come to set you free. I've come to heal and restore. I've come to restore the sight of the blind. I've come to set captives free. It's what Jesus' mission statement was. He's revealed it. It's his will. It might not be his timing right now, but that's not our concern. We do have to have a... We do need to maybe convey that when we pray for people, praying for people's pastoral, and we should be aware of that. But I just, if, if there's people here that feel like perhaps it's not God's will for your life to be healed, that's not true. That's not true. It's God's will for your life that you 
It's God's will for our life that we have the Spirit of God living within us in new and improved, amazing bodies, resurrection bodies that don't feel sickness, death, or pain, or sorrow. It's God's will for our life that every tear be wiped away. That's our hope for the future. And Jesus' prayer right now is on earth as it is in heaven. And he doesn't say, let's pray that it will be on earth as it is in heaven in the future sometime abstractly then. He says now. We pray that now. So God's kingdom come. God's rule and God's reign is this kind of invisible uh, rule and reign uh, in, in heaven perhaps but it's made visible through his people. It's made visible in the hearts of his royal subjects. Uh, People who have said, you know, I'm going to acknowledge that there is a king in heaven who rules and reigns. I'm acknowledging that there is a God in heaven who rules and reigns, and I'm submitting to his authority. Praying your kingdom come is to ask God to change the hearts, the heart allegiance, so what your heart, who, who, who you're saying yes to in your life, of those around us, starting with ourselves. It's to win over subjects to his royal rule. That's what it means to pray your kingdom come. Because his king, he rules and reigns, but not everyone knows it. He rules and reigns, but not everyone accepts him as king. And so you today, this morning, might already know and trust and believe that he's a good king. Because that's important, right? You don't, you don't want to live in a, in a bad kingdom with a bad king. But he's a good king. But a, a question that anyone would reasonably ask before joining up to the cause is what's this kingdom like? It's unlike any earthly kingdom. I think partly that might be why it's used, it's used so often in, in the Gospels, but in the New Testament letters, Paul drifts away from kingdom language and starts to talk about the church and, and talk about um, the body and the bride and, and other metaphors to describe what it's like to be the people of God. Because it's unlike any, any earthly kingdom. It's the only kingdom that I know of that every tribe tongue, nationality, cultural, religious, economic background is just, it's just welcome, unequivocally, without question. You don't need a passport to be part of the kingdom of God. Nobody is excluded. It's a kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of God sets the bar low for entry. You don't need money. You don't need uh, fame. You don't need to have contacts in high places. You don't need um, to have it all laid out in your life before you. You don't need to be um, morally superior or even morally okay or even a nice person in any way. You don't need to know your Bible. In fact, often those things can be barriers. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they knew their Bibles pretty well, actually. Jesus came for the down and outs, the sinners, the social outcasts of his day. Paul says, such were some of you. Such were all of us. God's kingdom is for the broken and for the needy. 
What's the price to enter? Are you thirsty in your soul? Are you hungry for more? Do you need to know forgiveness? Do you need hope? Do you long to be accepted for who you are? So many of us are are, are going around looking for acceptance from other people. What's on the cards in the kingdom of God is being truly known by the one who made you, the king of the universe. And God himself looks at our failures and our frailty and says, do you need a drink? Come in. Let me take those bags off your shoulders. They look heavy. Come, sit down. Let me take those, sh- those shoes off. Flip, these are dirty. I'm going to wash your feet. Come, come. And before you know it, the king of the universe has wrapped you up in his royal robes and is holding the tattered remains of your mistakes and your misdeeds and all of the pain and things that have gone on in your life. And he's holding your hand and he's walking you up to the feast. John, G, uh, John, Jesus, Josh said this morning, quoting Jesus as he read from the Gospel of John. That's, they both, they'll start with J. Three J's, that's my three points. Jesus says, I'm the shepherd, and the sheep hear my voice. And in John uh, 10, verse 9, it says, I'm the door. I mean, it could easily be, metaphors can be changed, can't they? It can be, so, so here, the metaphor is, uh, I'm a shepherd and I've got sheep and there's a, there's a pen and I'm keeping them in. But it could be I'm a king and there's a kingdom and I've got royal subjects. And Jesus says, I'm the door. If anyone wants to enter, come through me. You'll be saved. If you enter by me, you'll be saved. And you'll go in and out and find pasture. You'll find what you need. You'll be sustained. You'll find the thing that you need to, to, to grow and survive. For sheep, it's simple, it's grass. For us, it's much more complex, but you'll find it. Jesus. And hey, there's a thief. Did you know there's a thief who's coming to rob and steal? He's really out there to get you. He's really out there to get you. But Jesus says, I came. And he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the king and the kingdom. It's one where the king himself dies to welcome in people of every background, of every situation. Nothing is too shocking for God. And, uh, and I just want to kind of, there was, uh, as I was thinking about what we shared this morning, and as we have been praying uh, as a couple and as a, in a leadership team, we've been thinking about this church and what God's doing building his kingdom here. And uh, the encouragement that I wanted to share with you about kind of getting stuck in and being a people whose lives uh, reflect and represent this, these kingdom values, that there is a God in heaven who rules and reigns and my heart is his. He's my king. I'm living for him what it means to do that individually, but corporately as a church. And, um, you know, I felt like, oh, this, this last kind of nine years as God's built this church, it's an amazing testimony of his faithfulness. We started with six people meeting in that upper room, and then here we are now, and that's amazing. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things, what, there's difficulty in this time, 
there's, there's things ahead, there'll be challenges ahead, and it's very easy to feel like, oh, this, is, this can be a struggle, or this is difficult, or you know, this means I've got to step in here, or this means I'm going to have to make a sacrifice in my life. And, and like, you know, when you're serving in church, oftentimes it's a burden, and it's a challenge, and it's a, it, it, it weighs on you, which... Um, my, what we need to keep coming back to, what we need to remember is that it isn't meant to be a burden. It isn't our burden. It's not even our mission. It is God's mission. It is God's thing. And it's what he's doing. And amazingly, wonderfully, it is God's will to build his kingdom. Jesus doesn't say that we ask God to maybe decide to think about building a kingdom, but rather that he'll just do it, that his kingdom will come more and more on this earth. And uh, I was reading this uh, book. Uh, it's by a, a, a really old guy. He's dead now, called J.C. Ryle, who was the Bishop of Liverpool, I think in like the 18th or 17th century, something like that. But um, I'm from Liverpool, which is why I, I really love his book uh, on holiness. It's good, it is a good book. It's not just... Because he's from Liverpool. <laughs> um, it's hard to imagine good things coming out of Liverpool, except for the Beatles and J.C. Ryle. Um, but he, he was talking about the kingdom of God and saying how God is building his kingdom today. And when you can get, you can get your vision low and you can get really bogged down in how difficult it is or how impossible it seems to build a church, perhaps in the most secular nation in Europe, which I believe Sweden might still be on the tally, at least in the top three. That can seem like a challenge, but we remember Christianity, I'm going to paraphrase his words now, if that's okay. Christianity is a religion which at first seems so feeble and helpless and powerless that it couldn't survive. Founded by a poor nobody from a backwater town in Galilee who died a criminal's death on a cross, the first disciples were a group of maybe a thousand poor, marginalized, despised outsiders who were led by a, a few fishermen, some misfits, and who were the most part unlearned and ignorant. Christianity began as in a despised corner of the earth called Judea, a small and meaningless province of the vast empire of Rome. And its main claim, that of this poor Jew with no kind of uh, pedigree, no heritage, it has been vindicated as the Messiah by his death and resurrection appears to be designed to be completely rejected by all the major religions and philosophies of the day. Christ crucified was to Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. On paper, it doesn't read like a successful kind of start, main, main core belief. What do you guys believe? Well, we believe that Jesus died and was resurrected. Tag out. It says, most people of the day. During the church's first couple of centuries, it received persecution from all quarters. Pharisees, Sadducees, Jews, Gentiles, ignorant idolaters, and self-conceited philosophers all agreed in hating and opposing Christianity. It was seen as a disgusting sect and was spoken against everywhere. If ever there was a religion that began as a grain of a seed at its beginning, that religion was the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. 
but the progress of that gospel is great and steady and continuous. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 28, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I can't, can't steal. Uh, we, 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 I listened to a guy called Sam Albury this uh, Friday who was speaking here in Gothenburg and he was asked a, a question and his life is a testimony of counting the cost of following Jesus and it being worth it. This is a man who I, I felt very inspired. This is a man who, living with same-sex uh, same attraction, has, has, has counted the cost of, of, of stand, staying true to what he believes by, the Bible is saying, what he believes is true to what God's will is, your will be done in my life, means I'm going to live, most likely, a life of celibacy on my own. But he's not on his own because God has given him a family unlike he could have imagined. The family of God. And his testimony, amazing and powerful, was how it's been worth it. It's worth it, continues to be worth it to follow Jesus, to be in the kingdom. Because, and oh, sorry, and he said, he quoted this verse, uh, Matthew 16, 28. On this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And what he said was, we sometimes feel like that's a defensive, you know, the, the picture is that there's the church and the enemy's firing these fiery arrows at it. But that's not what he says. Jesus says, the gates of hell, gates don't move. They don't, they are, they are the defensive structure. The gates of hell are in the, the defensive, which makes the church on the offensive. It's the church that's coming against the enemy, in other words, the kingdom of God is on the move. It's advancing. We're the one moving forward. Jesus is building his church, and it's moving. It's going. Nothing's going to stop it. That's the, the testimony as we look back over history, 2,000 years of church history, is God building his church, and it will continue to be, and we get to be a small part of it here in Gothenburg. Isn't that amazing? You get to be part of this mission, this kingdom. So, we'll, we'll end there. If I can invite the band up. Um, where this might rest with some of us uh, is it might mean that there are things in our life that we feel we want to pray for. And perhaps talking about your will be done and perhaps there's, there's some prayer there that you want to, um, to pray for. Perhaps... Um, now might be a good time. We're going to take communion as well, and we'll do it the way that we, we often do, where we, we come and um, take communion, and then we, we can spend a, a short time praying in small groups. Uh, but what we'll do, uh, if we sing first, I'd like us to uh, sing, which I think we are, King of My Heart. That's right. And, and what we want to do as a church is, is, is really take on board both individually and corporately asking God again to rule and to reign in our life. It's his kingdom. It means kind of setting our sights on him and, and perhaps that means recognizing aspects of our, of our life that we, we're just clinging tightly on. We've not yet surrendered. might be uh, asking God, how can I display and show and demonstrate more in my
my life that I'm, I'm, I'm one of the royal subjects of God. Actually, we're part of the royal family. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Our Father, that means that we're part of the royal family. We're not just royal subject servants. No, no, princes and princesses of the king.